0: Welcome to Aftermask, the show that gets into how things are going to change both five months from now and five years from now in the wake of the coronavirus. Today, we have Ben Golliver, who's the national NBA writer for The Washington Post. He was also a senior writer at Sports Illustrated, and he co hosts the Open Floor NBA podcast, one of the most popular NBA podcasts in the world. We're going to talk about all things NBA, what the NBA is looking to do in the short term to potentially get their season back. As well as, how do things look long-term for the NBA? And what are some of the worst-case scenarios in the wake of COVID-19? All right, let's get to it. So, the NBA suspended their season on March 11th. And there has been a lot of rumblings, especially lately, about if and when the NBA may resume this particular season, the 2019-2020 season. So, it looked like for a while they were going to cancel... But now it sounds like maybe they're not. The Athletic is reporting uh, that they're at least considering coming back potentially in a bubble city uh, in Las Vegas. I think David Aldridge is reporting this. Uh, what are you hearing about what the NBA might do?
1: Well, the first thing to realize is that the ground has moved under their feet really, really quickly. If you actually go back to that March 11th date and the, the days right after it and you listen to Adam Silver's hopes, his best case scenario was maybe something as short as a four-week delay, and they would just pick everything back up after a month. I mean, that's what he was initially thinking. Within a couple of days later, the CDC came down with some new guidelines about mass events, and that timeline got pushed out uh, a little bit further until, you know, at least May. And then pretty quickly after that, there was discussion that, you know, maybe June would be the best case scenario. And pretty quickly after that, there was, uh, you know, speculation that if they did come back, It might have to run into the fall, which could potentially delay next season. And then now you have the L.A. mayor, uh, Garcetti, say this week that he doesn't think there will be any sporting events with fans in the city until 2021, right? So this is an evolving situation. There's no question. But the the most important thing to know is the NBA is not going to be giving up on this current season until it has to. And the reason why is television revenue. They were already on track to lose something in the neighborhood of $400 million uh, due to a previous controversy with China over Hong Kong that led NBA games to basically be you know, shut down in China for a period of time and also led to sponsorship ties kind of being uh, cut by Chinese businesses uh, last fall. So they were already in a situation where they were trying to make up ground economically during the course of the season. And of course, the easiest way to do that is during the playoffs. So the NBA's primary goal here is to get something on television to kind of recoup, uh, you know, the ad dollars to recoup uh, and and make sure they don't have to do make goods with the television networks and, and, uh, you know, give them some programming to put on TV. So if there's a possible way to salvage this thing, even if it means scaling down the playoffs, having fewer teams or fewer games, even if it means moving everything to a single site location, uh, this bubble idea. Uh, which has been out there for a while, and it could be Las Vegas, it could be uh, Los Angeles, you know, some location that has multiple uh, venues that you could play in close proximity to each other. The NBA is very interested in doing that uh, because uh, otherwise they're looking at a revenue hit that could exceed $1 billion if they are forced to cancel the playoffs.
0: What do you think about this bubble city idea? So in theory, it's everyone gets what a two week quarantine. Their families are with them. And then they're they're just all together and away from the rest of the world while they play out the season and potentially the playoffs. Do you think this is realistic? Do you think it's a good idea? Do you think there's better ideas?
1: Well, it's something that they should be exploring for sure. First of all, the big advantage the NBA has is that the teams are smaller, right? I mean, baseball is talking about doing something like this. The NFL may have to play in empty stadiums, but the advantage the NBA has is the teams are basically like 15 people deep, right? And you need three uh, officials, and, you know, you've got your assistant coaches, but this you're not talking about hundreds and hundreds of people affiliated with the teams who need to be in an arena during a scaled-down setting. Uh, what's more, you don't even have to play it in a real arena for the NBA. Uh, you could easily just have a, a practice facility gym, uh, which would, uh, you know, allow for television as well. Uh, you, you wouldn't need to worry about the fan aspect or, or selling tickets or anything like that. I mean, you could uh, actually carry out the games in a pretty Uh, you know, stripped down version. And I think we've seen some of that happen in the Taiwanese basketball uh, league. And there's been a lot of stops and starts over in Asia with their basketball leagues in terms of, uh, you know, officials trying to get the season back on and and running into some issues. Uh, But, you know, Taiwan's been successful by having no fans, by having just as few people as possible, by doing regular temperature checks, and then just trying to keep everybody, uh, you know, as healthy and quarantined and, and safe as possible. So uh, when you understand that the profit incentive here is in the billion dollar range, uh, you can understand why, you know, there's a possibility that people would want to get creative. I think the big thing to keep in mind with the NBA playoffs is that typically it's a logistical nightmare. You're talking about 16 teams and there would be one team from Canada. So you've got, you know, 15 domestic teams and one international team, which would typically require uh, international flights. You're talking about back and forth during series that are best of seven, which is 2-2, 1-1-1. Until the finals, you get 2-3-2. So that's an awful lot of airplane miles going back and forth every direction. Uh, And then you're also talking about a a tournament that takes basically two months to play out. So you would need to scrap a lot of those things. I mean, obviously, you can't really have any travel to keep people safe. I mean, that's going to be a a pretty high-risk endeavor. Uh, I think that you would need to move it to a single site. I mean, it just makes all the sense in the world to do that. Um, I think you would probably need to strip out some games, either cutting the best of seven series down to say best of five um, or just eliminating the first round entirely and just, you know, taking the maybe the best eight teams instead of the best 16. I mean, another uh, motivating factor here is history. The NBA has always crowned a champion every single uh, year of his existence, going all the way back to like the 40s and 50s. So if there is a blank spot in the record book, I think that, you know, that would be something that they're trying to avoid at all costs, too. Now, the question is, are the players going to be interested in in playing? And here you, you hear different uh, opinions. And there's teams like the Lakers and the Bucks and the Clippers who are competing for the title, who would play in basically any scenario as long as it was deemed safe. Doesn't matter if they have to play in Vegas or Los Angeles or on the moon. I mean, those teams are going to sign up and play. And you've got some other teams uh, maybe who are not those top flight contenders who are going to be a little bit more concerned about what are the health factors? What are the logistic factors? Do I want to be away from my family for at least a six weeks period, which is probably the shortest version of a playoffs that you could do. And then you've also got teams that were in the lottery. And there's been some talk about trying to you know, get the, uh, the, you know, the rest of the regular season played here. Um, those teams have nothing to play for. Uh, they're not going to be even able to make the playoffs. So you're putting all of them potentially into uh, a, a situation where they have to go into quarantine of this huge logistical hassle, and there's no payoff. So you can understand why the players aren't completely aligned here. Now, that being said, they do want the money, right? Uh, their paychecks are potentially going to get withheld here going forward. Uh, the the playoffs do create additional revenue for the players, and they you know tend to look forward to those playoff checks. So they have a, a reason to be good business partners with the league and, and try to get something done. But I think the only way that's going to happen uh, is if they feel safe. And there's one final complicating factor, which is the players need to be in shape. And right now a lot of teams, or basically every team has been mandated to close their practice facility. So players are basically on their own when it comes to working out. And that could mean working out in a home gym with equipment the team has given to them. Uh, That could mean, Uh, If they live in an apartment in a big city like a lot of guys do, it could just mean they're doing crunches or they're riding an exercise bike, you know, just kind of doing whatever they can. There's some big-time star players, including the reigning MVP, Giannis Adenakumpo, who doesn't have a basketball hoop right now. He doesn't have access to a hoop. That seems like a problem. And so the trainers have said, you know, we probably need at least two weeks, if not, you know, preferably four or five weeks to get players ready to go to play in the playoffs. And, again, the trick is there. Uh, it delays the the start of a potential playoffs uh, even further, right so uh to me, when you're adding up all those logistical complications, it's gonna be very difficult for the nBA to thread the needle, and the only way they're really gonna be able to do it, I think is if the conditions you know outside of basketball improve. Uh, I think that uh, if we're still seeing you know high death rate numbers, if we're still seeing the spread into new communities and everything else. I think it's going to become you know, very difficult to kind of get everybody on board to try to, do a, to, to, try to salvage a bubble scenario.
0: Joe Ingalls said he would walk away from basketball to protect his autistic son from the coronavirus. Do you think that there's an undercurrent of maybe NBA players who aren't talking about this, but who would absolutely refuse to play, even players on good teams, even potentially players on contending teams, uh, if it really came down to it? Like right now, maybe it's easier not to speak up and say, you wouldn't play, but if I, – I don't know any of the players' situations necessarily, but if James Harden had a grandmother or um, a father who had some underlying conditions, might, be, might he be really reluctant to play but just not speaking up about it? Do you think this is uh, a potential issue, or do you think the players are really just going to play if they're a contender and not have an issue with it?
1: It's a fantastic question. The way I would answer it is this. Right now, there are good enough relations between the players' union and the NBA – that I think that there is kind of an inherent trust factor that Adam Silver will will handle this the right way and he will do the right thing, and he won't put players into a position where they're going to feel their health is compromised. Now, I'm not sure we can say that about every professional league, right? I mean, when you're you're coming out and uh, the headline is, you know, President Trump wants the NFL to start in September, and that seems to be just kind of their goal no matter what, you know, and that's at least the messaging. Uh, I would imagine there's a lot of players who are calling their agents and calling their family members and saying, wait a minute, like what's happening here? But I think that there is a trust factor in the NBA's leadership. I mean, look, bottom line is if a player is out there not healthy and they don't have the the proper quarantine procedure in place and one guy gets sick and now a whole team gets sick, that is the worst nightmare from the NBA's standpoint because eventually they're going to be having to convince fans to come back uh, 18,000 strong into their arenas a few years down the road. And that's not going to be some guarantee where we all flip the switch and everybody feels comfortable going into public again. Right. And not only that, they're going to have to convince seasoned ticket holders who have been, you know, forking over hundreds or thousands, in some case, tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars per year for their tickets to make that type of uh, financial commitment again, after it's been disrupted for an entire year, those are very, very tricky things to navigate And I think the NBA realized that, you know, you can't force this thing. You can't uh, just kind of put your head down and, and, and bull through it and just expect everybody to get on board because it's going to be such a personal and such a major financial decision for basically every single consumer at some point down the road. I mean, you're talking about the fear factor that a player would have, but imagine how the, you know, if James Harden's grandmother, and that's what he's concerned about. Well, imagine if something happened to James Harden. Are Rockets fans ever going to buy tickets again? How long does it take for them to kind of get over uh, a medical crisis of that kind? I mean, it could be years and years, you know, if not ever. I mean, the the distrust would be damaged that badly. So I think that's why you're going to see everybody operating prudently here. Um, You know, I think that they are going to be focused first and foremost on safety. And I hope that that's the message that comes out from Adam Silver here in the next week or two. I understand there's a lot of building urgency this idea to get sports back no matter what. And, you know, we don't have to worry about, you know, the fans don't have to be in the building. Let's just have something on our TV. And I think ultimately, like, the safety and health of the players has to remain the NBA's priority. And, you know, knowing Adam Silver and how he's conducted himself over the years, I feel like he's a very rational guy who understands that, that he could do a lot of damage to his league if he rushes things back
0: when NBA players get the coronavirus, and I think there's been between five and seven known cases of it. They've all bounced back. They've all been perfectly healthy. It hasn't been an issue for any of them that we're aware of anyway. At the same point, there have been players in the past who have had severe underlying conditions that no one knew about. I'm thinking of like Reggie Lewis, who died of an an enlarged heart back in the day. Um, And People didn't really know that was coming. I, I guess there was a, a, a year-long period where they had a sense that he had some issue, but he'd been playing in the NBA for several years before they found out that there was even a problem. There's a chance that an NBA player could get the coronavirus and die, which is something that it's probably a very small chance, but there's enough players and there's enough potential underlying conditions that we just don't know about um, that that at least could happen. If something like that were to happen, what do you think the fallout would be in that case?
1: Well, that's a very, very dark question. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about that. What I would say is there was a real wake up call when Carl Anthony Town's mother was uh, placed into a, a, a medically induced coma. And then she unfortunately passed away about a month later. But you're right that the sentiment around the league and in basketball circles was that this is a horrible disease, but this isn't something that could kill guys because uh, they're all young, they're all fit, and, and everyone who had it was either asymptomatic or was able to get over it within, you know, a one to two week period in terms of the public cases. And I think the NBA players actually did a pretty good job of coming out and filming public service uh, announcements, trying to spread awareness about the disease in general. But I do think that there was kind of a a sense of false security, this idea that, okay, it can't touch athletes because these guys are in the prime of their health and they're younger. They're not, uh, you know, the typical high risk candidate uh, for, uh, you know, this particular virus. But I, I do think that Carl anthony Towns' his mother, hit, her death hit home for a lot of people. I mean, this is a franchise-level player, a multiple-time All-Star, someone who Minnesota has been building their entire team around. Um, and going forward, he's, you know, their North Star as an organization. Uh, and to have his mother, someone who was at games constantly, who a lot of players knew, who everybody in the organization knew – uh it hit really hard i mean knowing the timberwolves uh, organization a little bit i mean these guys are in grieving and they've been setting up all sorts of support structures and uh you know group meetings and group uh, therapy sessions and everything else to try to keep their employees you know uh, on the right track from a mental health standpoint so uh, that alone shows that there could is the potential for a major fallout and that's for a family member so if you're talking about a player uh, i imagine that would be the type of situation where uh, the whole league would just be forced to shut down again. Right. I mean, I think that the players would just not go on strike, but you kind of put their foot down and I think it would scare a lot of people and I, it would extend the, the timeline here uh, out even further. And I think that that type of situation, if you're a, a leader within a crisis like Adam Silver, you could, under, if you go back to March, once they had that first test from Rudy Gobert, that's what triggered the shutdown, right? There was no delay. I mean, they were trying to find ways to make it work without fans and trying to kind of keep the gates open as long as possible. But as soon as they got that first test, they shut things down immediately because I think all of those worst case scenarios that you're describing with a death or something else all came into play. And that they realized there could be a lot of blood on their hands. If Rudy Gobert is out there playing with a positive test, he could give it to other players uh, potentially. Uh, He could give it to fans that he interacts with. He could give it to referees, could give it to cameramen. I mean, there's so many other people in that building. And all of a sudden, you know, the NBA is potentially bearing liability for that. uh, And certainly they're going to be feeling guilty about not handling that situation properly. And so, of course, all of those same conditions apply if they were to try to bring the sport back. I mean, they're going to have to be above and beyond from a safety standpoint. And Let's face it, like the visibility around the NBA is a thousand times greater than the visibility around the Taiwanese basketball league, right? Like if someone was to die in that league, it's not going to be as nearly a big of a deal, especially here in the United States, as an NBA player uh, you know, passing away from this virus. So uh, there's, a, there's an absolute sensitivity to this uh, from a public relations standpoint. And I think that's one thing that Adam Silver has always been really good about is the communication side. Um, and it's the uh, managing relationships with both the players and the general basketball public. Uh, that's always been one of his strengths. I mean, there's other weaknesses that you could kind of point out, uh, but he tends to kind of hit those nails on the head. And I, I don't, again, I, I think he's going to act prudent here. He's
0: not going to rush. The Bubble City idea, there's a few other potential issues with it. So I just want to ask you what you think about these potential problems or pitfalls. Uh, one of them is if the NBA does this, they would potentially be taking medical personnel away from the front lines of hospitals and things like that. So they can host basketball games and that there's a potential real human cost to that and a massive PR hit potentially. So do you think, uh, first of all, that that would be an issue and how would the NBA respond to that?
1: I think the one issue they've already kind of faced is this idea of the testing, right? I mean, the NBA got absolutely creamed on the testing issue in March. And I wrote a story about it as well. I mean, it was, a fascinating dichotomy. So, in Oklahoma, in that week, uh, and we reported on this at the Washington Post, Rudy Gobert and then basically the entire Jazz organization, like 40-something people, were all able to get the coronavirus test right from the local health department officials in Oklahoma. That same week, uh, you know, someone basically like a nurse or a medical professional uh, was showing all the symptoms. And and by the way, those people were tested. Most of them were asymptomatic when they were tested. Uh, There was a medical professional who had been exposed to it, showed all the symptoms uh, and she was not able to get a test during that same time period in Oklahoma, despite being in a high risk profession, despite being a medical worker, uh, despite showing all the symptoms. And so, uh, you know, she wound up nearly dying uh, because of the delay involved in that. And a similar thing played out actually in Brooklyn too, where a bunch of players were able to purchase, or I guess the team purchased on their behalf, Uh, coronavirus tests. And then meanwhile, there was medical workers in the city at the same time who who couldn't get the tests, right? The NBA was absolutely crucified for that. I mean, Bill de Blasio came out uh, and attacked them. Uh, You know, it became a, you know, kind of a wedge issue in terms of access and how wealth and connections can get you, uh, you know, preferential treatment when it comes to health. The NBA is not going to want to go down that route again. I know they were very sensitive to that issue uh, as it was developing. They were very quick to point out that the league did not coordinate the testing for the individual teams, that they left those things to the teams. Um, and they were also trying to clean things up and basically say everything that happened in Oklahoma was decided by the local health authorities there. It wasn't you know, it wasn't from pressure from an NBA team or the NBA league office or anything else, right? So they understand that's a major public relations question. And it's also a major ethical dilemma. Do you take away these medical professionals? I think their hope would be like when they launch this thing or if they do launch this thing later in the summer, because we're still months away from this ever being a reality, right? That at that point, there would be more widespread testing. At that point, you would uh, also maybe be able to have a test that tells you whether somebody has already had it, um, had the coronavirus in the past. um, And then you would maybe uh, have hopefully also flattened the curve enough where you're not stressing the hospitals to the same degree that they're being stressed right now. I think those are the kinds of uh, developments that you would want to see if you're the NBA before you felt comfortable uh, proceeding.
0: If the NBA were to do a bubble city in Las Vegas and put up players and their families in luxury hotels, is it realistic to think that all the players would actually stay in the bubble scenario? that no one would, say, sneak in a friend for some nookie or something at any point. Is, is it, do you think it's reasonable and realistic that that could happen?
1: Well, it's funny that uh, you, you say that because I was actually just coincidentally um, with an NBA team when they gave their big coronavirus speech to the players. Uh, in early March Uh, and I I just happened to have really good behind the scenes access to their practice and it's just like not something that normally happens and so I was just kind of like um, you know loitering in the back a little bit if you want to put it that way and the issue of uh, partners absolutely came up right it's this idea of like not only do you need to be careful not going out of the club right now now is not the time to go to the club and stay out late right but you also need to understand that any physical contact you're having with basically anyone could potentially put you at risk. So that was part of the message from the teams, even before all this stuff went down. So I think that they're aware that that's just kind of part of being a professional athlete, you know, and it always probably has been. Uh, As long as there's been professional sports, there's been, uh, you know, guys, uh, you know, having fun after the game, so to speak. But that's why I think that you would have to narrow the the postseason bracket. And I think, frankly, you probably have to tell people, look, you you maybe not even have families, you know, it might just be players and teams only. It'd be sort of like a six week road trip. These guys do go on extended road trips, you know, sometimes for as long as two or three weeks during the season. If you could condense the playoffs to six weeks, bring everybody to Vegas, uh, no families, uh, you know, kind of monitor them as as carefully as possible, have a strict, like, you know, you're out of the playoffs. If you break quarantine type of rule, you'd probably have to set conditions like that uh, to make this thing happen.
0: You've attended roughly fifty five games in the NBA this season. As the coronavirus became more and more of a thing in the United States, what was your experience as a reporter and as someone who was coming into contact with fans, potentially players, officials, other team administration? What was that like for you?
1: It was really, really interesting. I mean, looking back, you know it's I'm lucky, I feel lucky. Um, first of all, it's very easy to get sick covering the NBA, even in Los Angeles, a warm weather climate, because we're constantly standing in these scrums of media members in close proximity inside of a locker room waiting for guys to come out. So it's just like a germ trap, right? And every year, one person gets sick and everybody gets sick. I mean, it's just kind of a common thing. It happens on the NBA teams as well. And it happens within the media uh, environment. You know, I'm pretty careful. I've definitely gotten a lot more careful in terms of like the, the hand washing and and trying to distance myself from people who might be sick and everything else. I mean, I was already kind of like slightly paranoid about it, but now I'm like full-fledged paranoid. Um, But at the same time, when we went to All-Star Weekend in Chicago, and this is mid-February, right around Valentine's Day, Adam Silver had an entire part of his address of his uh, annual State of the Union speech at All-Star Weekend dedicated to China and the coronavirus and basically lamenting the fact that a lot of Chinese media members weren't able to be Uh, at All-Star Weekend in person. And I'll tell you what, man, it flew over everyone's head. It flew over my head. I didn't write a single word about it that he had said that. Um, You know, We noticed that the the international media contingent wasn't as large as usual, but it wasn't really discussed in any meaningful way. Nobody was wearing masks at that point. It was a real false sense of security. And I was standing in scrums of hundreds of people at All-Star Weekend Um, Waiting for, uh, you know, the the interviews and everything else. And on top of that, Barack Obama showed up and shook hands with probably 100 people in a single room and didn't even think twice about it uh, as part of one of the community service events. Right. So this is only a few weeks before things really took off. And it was a few weeks after there was already a confirmed case um, within the United States. So, uh, you know, in hindsight, you know, probably knowing what we know now, a lot of those events and and things would have played out differently. Now, in terms of the days leading up to the NBA shutdown, I was actually on a flight, uh, you know, less than a week before the NBA shutdown, going to a a different market to do a story. And I was nervous going out there, but I was talking myself into it. Hey, this is going to be okay. It's your last story probably before things get shut down. So, you know, just just take care of business, you know, stay safe, lay low, and come home. Um, as I was doing that story, you know, I'm posting things on Instagram from the city and everything. And actually, uh, you know, I went to Johns Hopkins University for college. Uh, and a lot of my former alumni classmates were messaging me saying, like, what the heck are you doing flying around the country right now? Are you stupid? And this is like, you know, the second week of March, basically. And they're, they're sending me information saying, you need to get home, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I laid low throughout that trip, uh, you know, came back home and uh, started to kind of spread the word. You know, I actually have a podcast that I was hearing from people in Italy and a few other countries just saying how bad it was over there. And so then I kind of turned myself into, you know, a little bit of a broadcaster of, hey, you know, we need to be social distancing and laying low and that kind of thing. This is all happening sort of in real time very quickly. But the NBA still hadn't shut down yet. So uh, before Gobert's positive test, which was on a Wednesday night, the next night was scheduled to be a Lakers-Rockets, you know, a big-time showdown game in Los Angeles nationally televised game on that Thursday. So if Gobert doesn't test positive, um, I would have had a real dilemma of do I go to this game knowing that it's not safe, knowing that, you know, uh, Northern California, San Francisco is already trying to keep fans out of the Golden State Warriors games, knowing that the governor of Ohio – is telling people, hey, we're not going to be able to have Cavaliers games here with fans uh, and understanding that the risk factor is starting to get real. Um, I, I think that professionally, I was going to feel fairly obligated to go cover that game. And then what do you know? Multiple Lakers players wind up testing positive for the coronavirus, uh, you know, in the ensuing week or two uh, after that fact. <clears throat> now, that game never took place uh, because the NBA suspended uh, basically, you know, the previous night because of Gobert's test. But to me, that's kind of one of those crazy what- ifs is that if that test hadn't taken place, I would have been walking right into what we know was a germ factory and and covering a team that we know had multiple test cases and, and players at that point were probably uh, asymptomatic uh, carriers. And uh, you know it's very scary. And I'm of course, I'm not alone. There's hundreds of people who cover the Lakers, uh, and there's you know eighteen thousand fans who go to every single one of their games. So, uh, you know, in some respects, we're all very lucky that a positive test came through when it did, because that was sort of the tipping point moment, not only for the NBA, but for all of sports, and I think for American society at large, too.
0: Seton Hall University put out a uh, study about a week and a half ago now, where they asked uh, Americans, and you know, just a, a representative sample, of course, but Americans uh when they'd be comfortable coming back to sporting events. And they specifically question was, if there was not a vaccine yet developed or available, would you feel comfortable attending a sporting event? And 72% of Americans said they would not want to uh, attend a sporting event. Although 12% of that group said they would if there was social distancing that was maintained. Now, when you drill down a little farther, they also asked specifically people who self-identified as sports fans, and even of that group, 61% said they would not attend until a vaccine was available. What do you think that means for the NBA's 2021 and twenty-one twenty-two 22 seasons, when by most accounts a vaccine is at least 18 to 24 months away from being widely available?
1: Well, I do think that most of the, the attention that we've paid, especially as press towards the NBA's dilemma has been about sorting out this current season that's kind of hanging in limbo. But even going back to March when I was talking to team officials, they were already acknowledging a month ago, next season could be altered, right? Either it could be delayed or we could be playing with no fans. So they were already looking ahead to that as a fear factor. And that's a big deal. Now, keep in mind, though, most of the NBA's revenue at this point comes from its media rights deals, right? So they're not completely, um, you know, belly up financially as long as they're able to put something on television they're going to be okay and able to get by. The gate revenue helps. I mean, most teams make between $1 and $2 million per game every time they host a game, whether it's ticket sales, merchandise, you know, uh, parking, and everything else. Um, but it's still a smaller slice of their overall pie than the digital rights and media rights deal. Um, but in terms of fan behavior, I've asked myself this question because it's a little bit different. I mean, the obligation for me when I was weighing whether to go that Lakers-Rockets game was, you know, do I do my job, right? And it's the same, thing. like, am I an essential employee, basically, was what I was asking myself. And I think most people would agree that I'm not. <laughs> you know, like, the world's going to function just fine if I don't watch a basketball game. Uh, but I think that the question for people who are answering that Seton Hall survey is different. It's, is this going to be a fun diversion for me? And am I going to enjoy this event like I normally do? Or am I going to be, you know, risking my life? And that's a completely different question. You know, I'm a big Michigan football fan, and I love going to the big house. And for years, I have always, you know, spoken proudly about this idea that, you know, Michigan, okay, we might lose to Ohio State every year, but at least we have the biggest stadium out there, right? We, we can say we're number one, right? Uh, the idea of going to the big house right now for this upcoming season, it's something I look forward to every year. I make a trip out there. Um, basically every single season with one or two exceptions over the last 10 years. I, there is no way, even if they're playing football games with crowds that I'm going to be going this year, it's just not going to be worth it. You know, The, the risk reward calculus is just totally off from a fan perspective. And I guess I would ask you the same question. Like, can you see any scenario where you would go into an arena for fun uh, in the next, you know, 12 to 18 months, or, you know, even shorten it down to say six to 12 months. Um, I just think the fear factor, the legitimate fear, um, factor and the concern and the risk uh, reward ratio is just off. I mean, we go to sporting events as a diversion, as a break from the norm, as a, you know a chance to as a chance to just kind of uh, collect with our fellow fran- uh, fans and have a good time. And those things are going to be very difficult in a social distancing situation or just you know very difficult to kind of get over the mental uh, the mental hurdle of it. Uh, as long as you're truly processing the risk factors here, and you're not in denial about the disease. I don't see how you can, you know, walk into a, a stadium in good conscience.
0: What do you imagine is the worst case scenario? One of the worst case scenarios for the NBA a few years down the line. Like, what do NBA games look like? What does the NBA have to do if things are go go sort of in a way that maybe Adam Silver and the NBA owners are dreading?
1: So I think the worst case scenario for them is that uh, the disruption of just going to games constantly, you know, having fans who are regularly attending games as season ticket holders um, winds up being so long and so significant that they lose just a massive portion of their season ticket holder fan base. And those people are important. Now, obviously the digital right deal is most important, but you know, if you're talking about, especially for small market organizations who don't have amazing local TV distribution deals, all those fans coming in the gates matter, and they've worked really, really hard to cater to those people for decades, in some cases, to keep them loyal. Uh, and Portland's a great example of this. You know, growing up uh, in the Portland area, I mean, everybody knows the Golden Girls, the, the four ladies who you know travel on road trips, and they've been season ticket holders for 40 or 50 years and everything else. Um, those kinds of people keep the team in business, right? And if you have some, you know, significant percentage of season ticket holders who are like, you know what? Um, now that I didn't have to spend 5,000 a year on season tickets and I put this money towards whatever it might have been, uh, I don't miss it as much. Or if they're saying it, rather than going to 41 games a year, I'm okay if I just buy tickets here and there on Subhub and go to five games a year. Um, I thought I would miss the experience more than I did, or it's just no longer part of my routine, or I'll wait until the team is good. I mean, it's really a, a habit, you know, season tickets, right? I mean, it's a yearly cycle. You're buying them. You're, you're putting your money up front at a certain time every single year. They lock you in. It feels sort of like a club membership, uh, it, a lot like the gym. If you get locked out of your 24-hour fitness for six months, are you less likely to go back once it reopens? Probably. It's just you know a fact of life. So uh, I think that's going to be one of their biggest concerns is that even when uh, everything is deemed safe, right? Maybe there's a, a vaccine. I think you're going to see a lot of teams, especially teams that are losing teams and especially teams in sort of smaller markets, struggle to, to lure fans back, and that's a real problem because the NBA already has this perception that there's like a, there's the haves and the have-nots, and it's not necessarily a level playing field, and I think you're going to have certain organizations, whether it's the Lakers. I think you mentioned you're a Celtics fan. The Celtics, uh, they're going to be fine, right? I mean, there's always going to be – people in two years, people are going to go back and fill those buildings, buy the jerseys and everything else, but I think there could be some other markets where um, you know things are pretty dire. Another thing to watch out for from a worst case scenario is are there going to be insolvent owners, right? I mean, I'm sure you've seen the headlines about Houston Rockets owner Tillman Fertitta, where he's furloughed, you know, tens of thousands of employees from his other businesses because they're casinos and restaurants, where he's, you know, actually been out there searching for a $250 million loan at a 15% interest rate, which seems absolutely insane to basically anyone but that's already his level of desperation, you know, one or two months into this thing. What does he look like in six months, right? Is he forced to sell the team at an enormous loss uh, because he has no other choice? Um, and you, again, you're saying speculate, so I'm speculating with this kind of a thing, right? But there are a number of NBA owners whose, uh, you know, normal businesses are going to be impacted. Uh, the owner of the Miami Heat, Uh, happens to run carnival cruise lines well that's going to be a problem right i mean (laughs) that's where your money is coming from that's that's going to be an issue um and and there's other cases along those lines so i think for the nba the worst case scenario is they have a number of owners that basically have to get replaced those teams have to be sold they have to broker those sales and then in some cases whoever's buying those teams may want to try to relocate them or do all the kinds of stuff that really shakes the nba up And that would get to be, uh, you know, a very tricky situation. They could absolutely see an erosion of their season ticket holder fan base. It's possible. And then the the television viewership numbers is interesting, too, because the NBA has been in a real transition period where their TV numbers have either been flat or gone down. And their streaming numbers have increased slightly, but not enough to compensate for the the loss of, um, of television viewers. And a big part of that is because of people who are cutting the cord. Well, certainly, I know when there's tens of millions of people who are filing for unemployment, there's going to be a lot more cord cutting going on here over the next six months, right? And most people who cut the cord don't uncut the cord. They don't go back. So I think you could also see a situation where the television viewership numbers dip uh, as they're trying to, you know, scramble together a product in a bubble, or maybe they're trying to play games without necessarily the full fan experience or the full arena experience. And then that will wind up impacting the NBA's next media rights deal because if the viewership numbers aren't as good, the media companies aren't going to be forced to bid as much. Those media companies might not have as much money themselves because they haven't been able to sell advertising dollars off of the live sporting events. And so you could see a situation where you know, the, the projected revenue the NBA was going to make off its media rights deal uh, you know, five years from now is significantly lower as well. Now, if that would happen, you would see the salary cap drop, there would just be less money, and you would see player salaries uh, decrease, and there would be less money there. And what I would say, that would be a huge deal, because the NBA has basically been on a steady increase of growth uh, since the 1980s, which is kind of the modern era of the NBA. With one or two exceptions, uh, the league salary cap has gone up every single year. If you look at the last decade, it's been like the ultimate bull market. I mean, the, the salary cap has skyrocketed. So what you're seeing here is a, a situation where this coronavirus crisis, especially if it drags on for 18 months and it, it scrambles things like I'm describing, could actually sort of tilt the NBA's growth curve in a meaningful way and send it back into a period of uh, stagnation uh, or even worse. So uh, I hope that's dark enough for you, but I think I painted uh, you know, a fairly realistic Uh, long-term scenario if this situation does not find kind of an equitable resolution here like in the next 12 months
0: when it's finally time for fans to come back to watch the games in person and this is true certainly as you're saying for the media as well which you're a member of will the nba need to take any particular measures to earn the fans trust back or even your own trust back so you feel comfortable attending the games
1: well, I would certainly want to hear, like, here's our plan, right? Here's here's the uh, you know the safety uh, proposals, and especially if there's no uh, vaccine. You would want to know that. I think that the NBA is very focused on customer retention right now. If you look at even what they're doing with this horse tournament, which I'm not sure if you've seen that on television, you know, they just basically have people kind of live streaming from their front yards and their shooting hoops and everything else. And I think a lot of people on Twitter are kind of making fun of it. saying oh this isn't a very high quality product didn't even have good cameras like that's not the point the point is just to kind of remind people and consumers around the world that basketball still exists that you still love these stars here's trey young with his beautiful smile here's chris paul with his you know edgy personality just like letting people know that these guys are still out there and that's a big part of the the problem right now is is the customer retention and that's across every industry not just sports you know i mean you go through tech You can go through the financial companies, you can go through restaurants. I mean, everybody else is just trying to remind, uh, you know, customers out there that they still exist, you know, despite this crisis. So once there is sort of an all clear, once they kind of get into that situation, I think the NBA is going to want to make sure they have very clear communication about what safety steps they've taken um, and their protocol. I think they're going to want to make sure uh, that uh, whether it's a social distancing uh, program off the start or, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, some other accommodations that they're making within the arena, you're going to want to clearly communicate that. And you're also going to want to coordinate with the arena management people themselves, uh, to make sure that the public understands. Um, You know, I've heard some things like restaurants are going to need to be spaced out. uh, So there's not as many people kind of sitting on top of each other. I mean, who knows, maybe parking garages are going to sort of, you know, find themselves in a similar situation. You know, I've heard one proposal from Uh, somebody that says, well, you know, maybe you're only selling 5,000 tickets in an 18,000 seat arena. It's almost like the airlines where they're not selling middle seats, right? I mean, are those the kinds of things that would make, uh, you know, customers more comfortable? I mean, I think for me, um, you know, if they're holding a game, I still have enough trust factor in the the NBA officials that it would be a safe environment to hold it um, after everything that they've gone through. Because um, they obviously have a lot more to lose uh, than just about anyone from a financial standpoint. Uh, but the main thing would just be the communication factor of of uh, what what steps they've taken and uh, you know how' they're, how they're trying to protect people.
0: Are there any other angles on this that I haven't asked you about?
1: I mean, the other angle to consider here is the college athletes coming in for the draft, uh, because this is a, was seen as kind of a weak year in terms of the the talent of young players coming into the NBA. Um, And so now players who were previously weighing that decision would have the option of potentially going back to to college, waiting a year, making themselves better players, and then declaring uh, for the draft, right? And I think, unfortunately, what you're hearing from the NCAA level, I, I should say, fortunately, from a public health standpoint, unfortunately, from a player standpoint, is that they're probably not going to be having athletic events, Uh, on campuses if students aren't allowed back to campuses. And that's a huge hiccup that professional leagues don't have to deal with, right? Because to me, it's very difficult to see how you're going to have 20,000, 30,000, you know, however many uh, undergraduate kids back on a campus safely in dorm rooms and everything else. I mean, again, that's just a germ factory, right? So that probably means that, you know, the college basketball season is going to be Uh, in jeopardy it certainly to me means the college football season's in jeopardy and so in that scenario if you're a player who's sort of weighing his options go pro or go back to college if going back to college and playing isn't an option and going back to college and just you know getting to have the on-campus experience isn't an option that's pretty much going to force your hand in some cases and I think you're going to see a lot of players declaring for the draft um, whether or not they were like sort of super highly regarded uh, prospects just because of this crisis and to me, that's unfortunate because it, it could change their lives. It could change the direction of their careers uh, because of this. And uh, it could rob them of some college experience, maybe that they wanted. Um, and so, I mean, that's uh, tough to think about. And then the other question is like, you know, as the NBA keeps its season on hold, the draft is on hold. Summer league is on hold. Um, all these other events that the NBA, you know, typically has tied to a certain calendar are all now up in the air and, and nobody really knows when they're going to take place. And, And certainly the draft, which usually happens in June, is expected to be pushed back until at least August at this point. So, um, you know, aside from the current players, there's an awful lot of people who are being affected by this, uh, including younger prospects. And that's not something to overlook either, because ultimately those guys are the future of the NBA, right? Like whenever we come back the other side, there's going to be all these new faces um, that people are going to want to see. And they're in the middle of a, you know, kind of like a midlife crisis or a real traumatic period themselves.
0: Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been fabulous having you.
1: It's my pleasure. Uh, Stay safe. I hope everyone uh, in your family is able to stay safe as well. And I just encourage all your listeners, just stick to the script, lay low. um, Don't push things, even if the weather's getting nice or whatever else. Stick to the script, socially isolate, and hopefully this thing will be over sooner rather than later.
0: Thanks for listening to Aftermask. If you want to hear more from Ben, Find him on the NBA Open Floor podcast, which you can find anywhere podcasts are. Also, of course, he writes for the Washington Post regularly. Come back next week to hear our episode on the World Series of Poker, a place where over 100,000 people come from all over the world. Touch cards, touch chips, 2,000 people packed in one room, a bunch of people facing each other, sitting very close to each other at a table. We'll talk to some prominent people in the poker industry about that next week.